electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Well, good evening and welcome to this CNBC special, Taking Stock. As Melissa said with such enthusiasm, I am Brian Sullivan. Jim is off tonight and the rest of the week. And we got a big hour ahead and a decent day for your money, along with a red-hot retail sales number. We'll get more on that in a bit, but here's today's scorecard. If maybe you're just waking up in Guam, the Dow and the S&P rallying at the close, ultimately ending their day higher. The Nasdaq pulling a Nasdaq and outperform once again, ending up nearly a full percent. The Nasdaq, by the way, is up 15% just this year. Wow. One big story, though, we are watching is Ford. Ford shares down a little bit, but down again today as it continues to pause production of its all-electric F-150 pickup due to battery issues. Still don't have a lot of detail on exactly what those are, but it matters because the electric truck is incredibly important to Ford and its investors, so any problems with that truck could weigh on the stock. Well, tonight we're going to further plug into that EV race. Ford might be hitting the brakes a bit for now, but one maybe unexpected companies in the fast lane. We have got that name. And Cisco shocking the street with some good news. And wild, wild energy. Crew bouncing around a bit as oil tries to climb out of being negative for the year. How to approach the energy space. Our friend Lee McCroft of RBC Capital Markets will join us live and on set. We cannot wait. We've got a lot to do. Thanks for joining us in 3 o'clock out west. You're probably still sitting at your desk. Let's start with the markets and bring in Mike Santoli to break down today's trading. We had, Mike, a little bit of a, not a rally, some buyers stepped in toward the end of the day. Absolutely, Brian. I mean, pretty modest move at the index level. You look at the S&P 500 up a quarter of a percent, but actually up one percent from the morning low. So you've had this pattern uh, that's taken hold much of this year of uh, essentially intraday resilience. There's a little bit of a dip buying instinct. I also think if you look below the surface of the index, uh, you're seeing much more aggressive, riskier, more cyclical stocks do the upside work. Uh, So today it actually took the form of the Russell 2000 outperforming things like Airbnb popping these old favorites. 
favorites of 2021 that had huge busts last year have had uh, a revival of sorts. Maybe it's a short squeeze or people thinking that maybe they've turned. Uh, Coinbase, of course, you have Bitcoin uh, rolling as well. And then the higher interest rates have been a theme, but the market's been absorbing it because of signs of economic strength underneath it, uh, at least for now. There's probably a level of yields that the market can't deal with or a level of Fed hawkishness, but we haven't yet met it. Uh, and in February, we've added to January's gains, even though we've gone mostly sideways for about a week and a half now. All right, Mike Santilli. Mike, thank you very much. So the markets have had a hot start to the year. They're now nearly 20% off their lows of last year. But with these gains, is this all she wrote for the entire year? Or can you still make some money? Let's bring in Kerry Firestone, chairman and CEO of Aureus Asset Manager, obviously CNBC contributor, star of Halftime Report. Kerry, good to have you on. I mean, the Nasdaq's up 15% for the year. The median return of the Nasdaq going back to 1972 when it was founded is 12.6%. I'm not a math major, but that's more than 12.6. Have we made our gains for the year? Oh, gosh, Brian. Well, thanks for having me, and great to see you. Uh, the market obviously has had a big recovery since that, you know, kind of catastrophic end to the year when it was just oversold and everybody was just plowing out of stocks as fast as they could, particularly on the risk side. So what we've seen is a return to risk. The NASDAQ has had a gain. Some of it's short squeeze. Some of it's just sort of bear squeeze. I mean, the bears have been so dominant for the last six months particularly on growth stocks and NASDAQ tech names from mega cap to small cap, that any buyers have pushed up the market. And you're starting to see the people who have been sitting on the sidelines come rushing back in. And that's gone from the names like, you know, you saw Google today. Um, a lot of the big names, CRM, you look at Salesforce and you, you think about the largest of the growth names that nobody wanted to touch. They've shown some interest in cost control, reducing employees. Meta's up, you know, 80 percent from the bottom, plus Netflix, 100 percent. Yeah. So a return to risk taking. But it's also broader. You know, you, you've, you've seen much of the market move higher. It's not just these names. And perhaps it can continue somewhat more. You know, we're at a level of the S&P 41 uh, 100 plus, uh, we, you know, we bottomed at 3577. Uh, we can go away ways back before we're at a level that you start to get nervous. But with some of the moves, of course, you have to take a pause and say, can these stocks go higher? But there are other stocks that might begin to take up some of that slack. Well, I know there's some names you like, a name like a CarMax, a name like a Schwab, a name like a Charter, the cable company. But I want to talk meta for a second. You referenced it. Stock's yeah. up 80% off its lows. I understand they, they laid off a bunch of people, which is tough for the people, by the way. I understand they did a gigantic stock buyback. Didn't hear a lot in the media from the politicians about that one, but still, they did a gigantic buyback. But should that account for an 80% move off the low? I mean, I, it doesn't seem like it should. So somebody either got it wrong in selling it or is getting wrong in aggressively buying it now. So we've been an owner of Meta. I mean, I wish we didn't own as much as we did as it fell uh, as, it, as it did very hard. But we've held on to it and we had bought some, um, some more during the year as it was declining. It traded down to about 11 times forward earnings. 
It was just a very inexpensive stock. We understand that there are problems with the metaverse and what was going on with some aspects of the, of the company and people, you know, constantly take shots at what's the message here and is Instagram losing market share? What about TikTok? Where is uh, the metaverse going with Facebook, et cetera? On the other hand, enormous cash generation, still 2 billion users, uh, you know, regular mm. users, and most of the company is growing. The metaverse, we don't know what it's, what it's doing, but most of the company, the core business, continues to grow, continues to generate enormous cash. And they bought, as you said, uh, you know, 10% of the, the stock back. And then they announced these, you know, big headcount reductions. And the activists yep. have been clamoring for this. This is what um, is driving a lot of stocks right now. It, it was a low yep. valuation, oversold, short squeeze began. And then you started to see activists come out of the woodwork and say, you know, we really like what they're doing here. And this is what we expect from the big tech names this year. You can't spend wantonly. You just have to have some religion and get a hold yeah. of where you're going on the cost side. Um, not not just spend and spend because it's not 2020 anymore and everyone isn't at home just on Facebook all day. Let's hope not. Kerry, stick around. Let's add in another smart voice of the conversation. Bring in Kevin Simpson, Capital Wealth Planning CIO. Kevin, we got a, we got a mega or meta Retail sales number today kind of blowing away a lot of expectations. There have been a lot of people who have kind of either been calling for a recession or the imminent collapse of the consumer. I understand the case. Consumer debt is soaring and interest rates are going up. Bad combo. Did you take comfort in that retail sales number today that a soft landing is either possible or probable? Well, you know, I always look at the retail sales and the CPI and all these things as a true measure of inflation. You know, are we out there spending or aren't we as a consumer? And in your question, you, you put the, the fear into me when you think about credit card spending, because we're at a, over $1 trillion in consumer debt, which is the highest it's ever been. But when you combine that with a rising interest rate environment, it, it makes me very cautious. So, so you talk about a soft landing, and we all we all hope for that. And now we're hearing about a new term, which is the no landing. And, and, and certainly it's possible. And it's far more possible than I thought it could ever be if we were having this conversation two months ago, you know, say at five in the morning by, by chance. But the labor market has made it so much more palatable for a, for a soft landing. I mean, the resilience in this labor market, the resilience in this consumer, the resilience in so many aspects of the economy are, are a very positive sign. And I can see that bullish sentiment making a case. It's not my base case, but it's certainly much more of a probability than, like I said, we would have anticipated two months ago. I still think the Fed has to continue to raise rates. I think they're going to raise rates until they can compress this economy. They need, they need inflation to, to come down faster than growth is coming down. And so far, that hasn't happened. So it kind of, in, in my opinion, it still makes the hard landing, yeah. the economic compression, or even a mild recession, a more likely scenario. But things, you know, things aren't horrible. Yeah. It's not dire. I, I brought up that I brought up that credit card stat at a dinner because that's what I do. That's why people don't have dinner with me anymore. And we were talking about higher rates and sort of the monthly payments. And then somebody, I can't remember who it was, one of my friends, are, said, looked me in the eye and said, "What if people just don't pay it back?" And I, I didn't have an answer for that. And I thought, you know, we're all worried about consumer debt. And a lot of people are just mad at the credit card companies. What if they just don't pay it back and they just keep spending 
which theoretically could happen. And whatever you think about it, keep the economy going. I know it's a weird thesis, but I, I didn't have an answer for it, which frustrates well, me. We had 2008. You know, it, it happened, didn't it? Yeah. That, well, I think that's where it's coming from. And we're seeing it now with other types of debt as well. And, there, you know, there's a lot of sort of anti-bank sentiment style out there, whether you agree with that or not. But if we're using the consumer debt level as some sort of doom thesis for the economy, one wonders if that will actually be the case or people just keep charging, keep flying, keep going to restaurants and keep things afloat for a while. Well, it can't be a doom thesis because of the labor market having the resiliency and the increase in wages that we've seen. So for now, you can raise rates, you can you can raise prices, you can do anything you want. And, and the consumer clearly uh, is still spending. And, and I, I, you know, if the eyeball test is anything, you know, it seems to me that, that, that that's still the case. So I would hope that the flush uh, employed consumer who's spending or stretching a little bit in consumer debt uh, will still want to keep their credit score in good shape, still keep the uh, economy moving forward and, and will still make yeah. at least those minimum payments. I, I made carry this consumer argument with Kevin on the macro. You like CarMax. And I'm thinking this is an unusual pick. The biggest used car chain when rates are going up, although, by the way, used car prices have come down a little bit, but they're still insane. Yeah, they're still pretty high. Uh, CarMax is an interesting case. We've been watching the stock for a couple of years and it had an enormous run up uh, during the pandemic. And then it really had a very difficult year last year. I mean, it, it, it fell over 60 percent. Uh, the, the company is much better financial shape than its competitors, Carvana and Carguru. Um, what they've done is invest a lot in their online presence. They both have physical stores or car lots, you know, and uh, they're mostly on the East Coast. And there's a lot of room for them to expand. But they also have a big online presence. So you don't have to pick your car online and, you know, have it delivered to you. And then you say, gosh, I don't really like it. You go to the lot and you try it, and they have a huge selection. Uh, and I think they're they're very transparent in the way that they um, price their cars and the descriptions of their, their cars. Um, mm-hmm. We think that what they've done is make the right investments at the right time in expansion and, and the online application. And they're going to be way ahead of their competitors because they've made this investment. The stock is earning. They have a free cash flow. And we believe that it's very undervalued at this at this price, you yeah. know, currently. It's, so it's we bought a, it at a good price and and it's been um, it's been reacting right. Well, looking at the stock prices of Carvana and Vroom, I guess the novelty of actually sitting in a car, you're going to spend 50. You don't want to sit there and have it smell like Jerry Seinfeld sob. Well, you know, they couldn't get the smell out. They didn't know what it was like a raccoon died under the seat. <laughs> Carrie, Kevin, appreciate it. Good discussion. Have a good night. Thank you. Thanks, All right. We are just getting started on this post Valentine's Day program as we had to break. Let's see if Cisco shares are getting any love. They posted their numbers. We're going to lay them out for you next. There's a lot more to do right here on this special Taking Stock. Coming up. We'll give you a ring when the CEO of Ring Central chimes in on earnings. Plus, Ford versus Tesla. Stay current on an EV road race for the ages. And the path to clean energy is a marathon. Pumps, petrol, and your pennies when Taking Stock returns on CNBC. 
take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere, you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. All right, welcome back. Cisco earnings out after the bell. Let's get right out of Frank Holland with the numbers and the guidance. Frank. Hey there, Brian. Cisco off its highs, but at one point up more than 8% falling beats on the top and the bottom line. Profit two cents above estimates. The networking systems giant also raising its full year guidance. The quarter was strong overall. Beats in both segments, also a beat on margin. This is key because Cisco had supply chain issues in Asia and China due to COVID. On the call, Robbins said those issues were easing. He also discussed what gave Cisco the confidence to increase its full-year EPS guidance. The bottom of the range now 18 cents above estimates. The increased visibility we have from almost $32 billion in RPO, a healthy backlog and pipeline, and improving supply give us the confidence to raise our full-year outlook. We expect those same factors to continue into fiscal year 24, So you just heard there, Robin's referring to remaining performance obligation. That's a forward-looking metric. Also saying that 53% of that $31.8 billion is current RPO or expected to be realized as revenue in the next 12 months. Cisco also raising its dividend by 3%, which equals a penny. But still, another sign of confidence in future business, Brian. Yeah, certainly, and that stock is responding. Frank, thank you very much. All right, another well-known technology company, Ring Central, also reporting after the bell. Now, Ring Central is the California-based maker of communications and cloud tools for business. It is not the doorbell camera company. Now, the stock is down after hours, even though they announced a strategic collaboration with Amazon Web Services earlier today that set that stock up nearly 8%. Joining us now is Vlad Shimunas. He is founder and CEO of Ring Central. Vlad, good to have you on the program it was a big announcement today. Obviously, anything with Amazon is big. But Amazon also has, as I understand it, some competing products or maybe overlap with you guys. How does that play out in this collaboration? Yeah, Brian, thank you for having me, number one. Uh, great to be here. Uh, Amazon uh, could not be more excited. Obviously, Amazon needs no uh, introduction. Uh, yes, there is some product overlap. But uh, there is a lot more uh, complement between the product lines than there is uh, overlap. And uh, if you think about it, uh, our flagship uh, MVP message video phone uh, uh, service, uh, SaaS, is uh, something that uh, we and Amazon seems to believe uh, many of their customers, and especially their enterprise customers, 
uh, could uh, really use uh, as uh, an integral and core part of their digital transformation. So we are all super excited here. We're already yeah. seeing good traction uh, from uh, some of the early engagements and um, can't wait, uh, you know, can't wait for more there. You're talking to your shareholders right now. What is the incremental opportunity for you guys? Look, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, we, we just guided. So, I, you know, it's a little bit hard for me to change that uh, on the on the air here. But usually we guide conservatively. I can say that in the guide that we have just announced, uh, we did not uh, factor uh, very much for Amazon, given how new this relationship is. So I would say it's all upside for, from here. But obviously Amazon uh, is uh, one of the well-known mega scalers. And uh, it is, uh, uh, you know, a, a wonderful situation for us and in a way a humbling one that they chose uh, Bring Central uh, to partner with uh, as uh, their uh, UKS provider. Uh, so uh, Amazon will be uh, uh, helping us uh, sell the product. Their sales forces uh, will be compensated. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. Will be uh, uh, available uh, in uh, in the market in the mar Amazon marketplace. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see. But obviously, Amazon uh, has uh, quite a number of, ent of enterprise customers mm -hmm. and others, mostly in the enterprise. And this is an area where we think we can really make a difference uh, for them and for us. How do you compete with a Microsoft Teams, a Zoom? Those are the more video collaboration products all of our audience knows. And also, as we go further and further back to the office, which is going to happen and is happening, how do you adjust? Well, we think it's great for us. So uh, Ring Central, uh, we were not a COVID play. Uh, we started way before. We did okay through COVID. Uh, we think we will do just fine now that the world is done and uh, the world of work is back to uh, at least hybrid, certainly no more just working from home. Uh, look, uh, MVP, message video phone. Simply put, we have the best cloud phone uh, in the world. We have most features, most geographical coverage, by far uh, best uptimes. Uh, we're talking about uh, five nines uptime, that's 99.999% uptime. That translates into a uh, few short minutes of downtime per year. Uh, no one uh, in the uh, space uh, can claim anything close to that. And uh, we've been at it for, I think, 16 uh, quarters and counting. So we do have the best phone. Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft Teams is an opportunity for us. Microsoft Teams supports something called direct routing, mm -hmm. where we are actively playing. So uh, it's uh, quite common for an enterprise to be using Teams messaging and uh, Ring Central phone. Um, you know, you mentioned Zoom. Sure, look, there is Zoom, there is other competitors, but uh, there are uh, multiple hundreds of millions of seeds still to be migrated to the cloud. Uh, we talk about yeah. uh, trust, innovation, and partnerships, and we are unique on partnerships. Uh, we have uh, world's largest customer base installed on-prem seeds with Avaya. We have just re-upped our agreement with them. Uh, they're sitting on tons of millions of seeds still waiting to be upgraded. We believe we're the natural destination for, uh, for them. So uh, we could be more excited. Vlad Shmudis, Ring Central CEO. Vlad, appreciate you coming on the program. Lot to discuss there. Back to office, et cetera. Thank you. Have a great night. Be well. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. 
All right, coming up, a rather stunning admission from a major auto executive, what the CEO said about his own company. Next. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly Constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to Indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, welcome back. Ford in the news lately for many of the wrong reasons. Ford CEO coming out and saying his company must cut costs because they are just too expensive compared to some rivals, especially in electric cars and trucks. That is, the company also continues to pause production of its electric F-150 for battery issues. Let's get more on all of this and bring in Phil LeBeau. Phil, dramatic stuff for the CEO. Brian, there's really two stories here with Ford. There is the old part of the business, the one with internal combustion engine vehicles. That's where Ford is going to be doing most of its cost cutting, or at least that's the plan from Jim Farley. He he has outlined that over the last couple of weeks. Then there is the conversion to EVs. And the EV business, while it has some bright spots, it's still a fledgling business. It's not even profitable yet. That said, Ford is making headway in terms of developing its EV portfolio. The F-150 Lightning is a big part of that. We reported yesterday, as did others, that they suspended production of the F-150 Lightning at the beginning of last week because they were looking for a potential issue with the batteries that they said, look, let's let's suspend production and deliveries until we figure it out. Well, they believe they now may have found the root cause of that battery issue. Still, they're going to suspend production through the end of next week. If they believe they have found it, if they can make the corrections necessary, then they'll fire the line back up, not until the end of next week. For Ford, the production of EVs is front and center for future growth. They expect to be at 600000 by the end of the year, with 6% EV margins targeted by 2026. So you take a look at shares of Ford. You've got two stories here. You've got the legacy business, then you've got the EV business. And in the EV business, Ford is number two in sales here in the U.S., but a very distant number two, trailing Tesla, which now sells basically two out of every three EVs in this country. By the way, Ford moving to non-negotiable pricing for its EVs next year. Jim Farley said today he believes that's going to be a big difference maker. Speaking of Tesla, 
The announcement from the White House this morning that Tesla will be eligible for some federal funds as the administration puts money into expanding EV chargers around the country. Why? Because Tesla has said, sure, we're going to open up the supercharger network. And as a result, if you were driving a non-Tesla electric vehicle, right now you can't charge at a Tesla supercharger station. By the end of next year, Tesla says they will open up that network, which is a huge network yeah. relative to everybody else, especially uh, on the highway, Brian. That's really where you see the biggest advantage for the Tesla supercharger network. When I drove that Polestar from Vegas to San Francisco across the desert, I was pleading for a Tesla network because they had a roof. It was 120 degrees. Um, speaking of Tesla and the White House, Phil, I'm going to read a tweet. The president, who's had, a, let's be clear, kind of a frosty relationship or no relationship with Elon Musk, sure. Tweeting out this, in building our EV charging network, we have to ensure as many chargers work for as many drivers. To that end, Elon Musk will open a big part of Tesla's network up to all drivers. That's a big deal. That'll make a difference. That's the president. I wonder if that tweet is a big deal, Phil. Like a little, is this a little, little post-Valentine's Day thawing and a little love between the president and Elon Musk? Well, I mean, he, he would be wise if he wants to develop EVs in this country, more people buying EVs. Tesla's king of the hill and will be for, for a long time. He is wise to not turn a cold shoulder to them, which this administration did for a while, Brian. They have started to warm up a little bit. This EV charger announcement is a big, uh, is, is a big deal. The president is right in that regard. People, when I talk with them and they bring up charging, they do not bring up ChargePoint or any of the other independent charging companies, they bring up, if I'm on the road, can I go to a supercharger station? And when I say no, they say, why not? And I say, because Elon developed it for Tesla. Well, that will hopefully change by the end of next year. So yes, the president's tweet shows he realizes how big a deal uh, Tesla is. It's like the Android phone adapter now works with the Apple phone because somebody put an adapter in. I mean, it's, it's like, but maybe bigger than that. Maybe a big deal on this. We'll see. Philip O, by the way, if you get any more info on that F-150 battery issue, let us know. It seems like a big deal. I'd like to find out what's going on there. Phil, thank you. All right, well, speaking of trucks, engines, and the like, trucks, engine, and generator component maker, Cummins is working to cut it and its customers' carbon footprint. They built out a new unit called New Power, of which battery electric systems are a big part. But will customers buy into it? Joining us now is Amy Davis, the president of Cummins' new power business. Can you build out, Amy, the new power while still maintaining the old power in a one of America's most iconic companies? Thanks, Brian. It's really great to be here. Commercial vehicles are quite different than passenger car. I just heard you talking a lot about the challenges of infrastructure and convenience. It's an even bigger deal in commercial vehicles. And what Cummins brings is over 100 years of deep knowledge of all of these various applications, because there's not just one kind of a commercial application. There's multiple kinds that need different kinds of demands and different kinds of power. And so what we're doing in New Power is combining this deep application knowledge with the innovation in these batteries and traction systems and hydrogen technologies and really innovating for our specific customer base. And that's really what's exciting about what we're doing. Can you talk to our audience in a non sort of engineer like way about the difference between electric and hydrogen? Because 
I've driven a number of electric cars. I drove the first Tesla back in whatever it was, 08, a bunch since then. They're fast. They're fun to drive. The range sometimes stinks. Big trucks towing heavy loads, which what Cummins engines are known for, can go like 100 miles, maybe 300 with a modular pack. Truckers need to go further than that, Amy. Is hydrogen maybe the answer longer term? Well, simply put to your question, Brian, it's all electric. It's really about the energy storage. And so in these applications that require more power and more range, there just simply isn't enough energy storage to make it happen. And so what hydrogen does is a hydrogen fuel cell provides electricity to either power the drivetrain directly or supplement the energy storage in the battery just system by charging the batteries. Just constantly recharge the battery, like a giant alternator in a way. Exactly. And so it's a great coupling of technologies that can really apply in commercial applications, as you can imagine. Where are we in reality on this? When am I going to drive across, you know, I-80, the Blue Heron rest stop in Youngstown, Ohio, and, and, and have a triple-decker, you know, hydrogen fuel cell electric truck blow by me? You know, adoption in these sectors are going to be a challenge, as you can imagine, and passenger cars getting a lot of attention and it's going first. And we're working on the right technologies. There's a lot of innovation to be done. And it's a combination of getting the innovation to drive the cost down and make it work in these hard applications, these heavy use applications. And also infrastructure, because when you think about these trucks, these equipment, they need infrastructure everywhere and they need it to be fast because uptime is the name of the game. And so infrastructure, cost, innovation, these things have to come together. And what we're seeing now is customers mm-hmm. pilot, get experience with the technology. And it's going to be some years before we see large scale adoption because it's just not going to be practical. We didn't need a scientist to figure out that time is money. Just ask a trucker. A truck driver will tell you time is money. They're sitting there charging. They're going to be ticked off because costs some money. Cool technology quiet too. Amy Davis, thank you very much. Thank you. By the way, folks, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Ohio allows three trucks. You're driving along I-80 and like a triple semi truck blows by. It's unbelievable. All right, let's stay on the all electric theme because we know that many are saying that electric or hybrid cars are the only cars to the future. In fact, California says it will ban the sale of gas powered cars in just 12 years. New Jersey going the same way. Seems impossible. Who knows? Time will tell. But if you looked into buying an EV, well, if you have, you know one thing. They tend to be expensive. And the longer battery range you want, the longer you want to drive, the more you're going to have to pay. Which led our next guest to write a great piece in The Atlantic magazine about the unfortunate realities of electric cars. Bring in Andrew Mosman for more. Andrew, um, I'm a car fanatic. Uh, I love The Atlantic, so it was a great combo piece. And... What you're highlighting is the fact that if I buy a gas-powered car, if I go out and buy a gas-powered Toyota, I'm going to get the same range as somebody with a lower income who buys the same car. If I go buy an electric car, I can probably afford the bigger battery, which is going to get me another 100 miles. We've got to figure out this pricing discrepancy because it does feel like like a blow or an expensive hardship to those who, who are trying to make the transition. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think what you'll find is range is probably the biggest contributor to your convenience, uh, your happiness, your just uh, general lack of anxiety as an EV owner. Um, I I talk in the piece about how, you know, we have these EV, these uh, EPA rated 
EVs that are out now, and you'll hear a number, you know, like the, the new Tesla Model 3 is, is currently rated at 272 miles. It's not actually going that far. Um, you know, you can't charge up to 100% most of the time. Um, if you're driving down the freeway, it burns through miles faster than that. Um, so if you are, as you said, um, you know, if, if you can't afford the $100,000 version of the EV, you have the $40,000 version and you have uh, the smaller range figure, life is a little harder. You might be a little more uncertain that you're going to get 150, you know, 200 miles uh, down the road yeah. to where the next charging stop might be. Because the difference, and I'm not going to pick on Nissan. They developed the Leaf. It's a great car. They're one of the originators. But I was looking at one of their newer cars, Carderia, and it goes from 43000 to $60,000. The $43,000 version will get you, they say, I don't know, 215 miles, but we know that's not 215 because no electric car, you drive from zero to 100. So you maybe, I don't know, what, 170, 180 realistic miles without before you get jumpy about the charge. And then do you have a house? Do you have a garage? If you live in an apartment, does your landlord, will they put in the charging station or do you have to put in the charging station even if you're a renter? I don't doubt the way things are moving, but there are huge questions. In addition to, by the way, taxing the roads that we have got to solve before this is fixed. Yeah, that's right. I, that, that thing about uh, charging at home is, is one I really wanted to write about uh, in Atlantic because I feel like it's something people just simply aren't talking about. And it's a, it's a huge difference. You know, if you, if you own your home or you otherwise have the ability to put in home charging, Life, life is better. You know, you don't stop at the gas station. You go home, you plug in the car in the garage, you wake up, full battery. That's all the range you need um, for a day, unless you're you know, going down uh, the freeway on a road trip. Uh, if, if you don't have that, you can't charge it at home and you don't have them at work. Uh, you're talking about dealing with the annoyance of driving down to uh, a, a fast charging station and uh, which every, every time or, you need to top which up, may or may which not may be work. miles away. Or may not yeah, well, work. It, when I drove across, when I drove 500 some miles, I've done a, I've done a few trips. A lot of the charging stations are broken. Some jerk in mm-hmm. a gas car is parked there, doesn't want to move. Right? There's a lot of issues. The credit card processor doesn't work. And by the way, it's not free. A lot of these fast charging stations, I was 30, 40 bucks to top up, just just mm-hmm. to charge. So th- there are many hurdles. What we're saying, tax credits help. But yeah. do you think the 20 30 goal is realistic? 2035 goal? Uh, I don't know. I, I think that you can get um, a big chunk of, of America to electric um, by then. But all, all is a big ask. Um, you've, got, you've really got to expand um, with a ton of fast charging stations. And especially if you want people in suburban and rural America to be able to do this, you've got to go uh, you know, out there, like yeah. a lot, a lot of the, uh, you were talking about the charging networks, uh, before, I mean, that's why I bought a Tesla and not a different EV in, in 2019. It's the, the charging network, but even Tesla's, if you go out to, um, some of the, um, some of the rural States, there aren't superchargers off the interstate. Um, so yeah, we're, we, we got, you know, it's good. It's going to be a ways. Yeah. And, I, and I, and maybe next, I would love Lots for you to, to write about, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I don't have time, but <laughs> write about sure. the gas tax issue because gas taxes yeah. pay for the roads, electric cars use no gas. So you've got registration fees, stuff like this. But I also wonder, are they going to have to tax our miles? They're going to monitor our GPS. And at the end of every quarter, every year, we'll get a giant bill in the mail for the road use. They're going to have to figure out how to make up the money. And it can't just be a one-time registration fee because then you're not being taxed on how much you may drive 
Maybe the next article is about that. Andrew, we appreciate it. I'll tweet the article back out. Really, thanks for coming on. Thank you, sir. Have a good evening. All right, 50% of EVs by 2035. We're at 5.8% right now. It's a 720% jump. Realistic? Let me know. All right, don't go anywhere. There's much more ahead on this CNBC special, Taking Stock. Coming up, don't lose your energy. We've got the latest on the sector that could power your portfolio. Plus, a taste of luxury. Is this stock of better value than a handbag that costs an arm and a leg? Taking stock will be right back on CNBC. All right, welcome back. Here's how things ended the day. They ended up, not a lot, but up. Dow 38 points, so 0.1%. The Nasdaq was the big winner. Up 0.92%, notching a three-day win streak. The Nasdaq now up 15% this year. And here's like a mini RBI for you, random but interesting. The average gain of the Nasdaq comp going back to 1972 when it was founded is 12.4% per year. So our gain in six weeks is more than in most years. Huh. See if that lasts. Futures, by the way, very thinly traded at this hour. Take it with a giant grain of sea salt. Right now we are mixed. NASDAQ up 17 points. All right, coming up, take a look at some of the biggest drags in the S&P 500. Devon Energy, Pioneer, Occidental, Marathon Oil among the decliners. See a trend? What exactly is going on with oil, with Russia, with OPEC? The incomparable Lima Croft is here on set just for you. All right, welcome back. Let's talk oil, energy, geopolitics, because despite oil inventories popping lately and a new release from the SPR, yep, another one, price of crude is still stubbornly high, just under 80 bucks a barrel. You can see, there you go, our supplies of oil continue to go up. But that in the face of growing demand from China and a just announced 500,000 barrel per day production cut from Russia, which is facing at least three different major sanctions. Let's tie it all together and welcome in our friend and contributor, Halima Croft, Managing Director and Global Head of Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. A lot to discuss. Was this, was this 500,000 barrel a day cut? Was it really a cut or was it really Russia just saying, eh, we can't produce all that oil because we got a lot of problems? Rebranding production problems your note. as a cut. The yes. rebrand. The rebrand. No, is this an involuntary cut because the sanctions effect is actually kicking in? Now, what's interesting is, is you have officials saying that this is not necessarily the impact of the seaborne oil embargo yet or the products ban, but the initial set of sanctions that were imposed in the early days of the war targeting the provision of technology and equipment to the oil industry Mm. and also the exodus of major companies out of Russia. They have a number of complex fields. And the question is, will Russia be able to maintain output at those fields without technology? If you read my mind or my notes or maybe we've just spent so much time together that we're sort of simpatico. I sort of only semi jokingly tweeted out the other day that Russia could turn into Venezuela. And what I meant by that was Venezuela rotted because of no money. They ran out of money. They gave it all away. Western companies left. Russia can brag all at once about its output. But you wonder how their fields and their facilities are actually doing. Right. I mean, the question is, over the medium term, if these sanctions are sticky. And there's no indication that these sanctions are going to be pulled back unless there's an end to a war with Vladimir Putin, probably not in office. So if these sanctions are here to stay. I mean, Russia's ability to be a major producer over the medium term is highly questionable. OPEC, 
two million barrel a day cut, which we know was not two we million. We were there we, we, for that. Yeah, we were there for that, and we, but we know it was also not two million because quotas and other issues like this. But they seem to have gotten it somewhat right because if if they didn't cut what they did, oil would be where fifty bucks, sixty bucks a barrel, and maybe we want that. But they don't. I meant get it right for them. For them. I mean, oil is the ATM for their very important development initiatives. And from their standpoint, they needed to put in a circuit breaker to halt the slide in the market. I think they feel very comfortable with that decision. I think Mm. they're comfortable staying on the sidelines till June and not taking any additional action. They're going to wait to see what happens with the China reopening, what happens with interest rates, with inflation concerns. And we'll see them in June. How big of a deal is China? I mean, China is a huge story. I mean, that is the potential tailwind for oil this year. I mean, a full China reopening, I mean, that is a demand lift that oil will need if we want to think about potentially back to $100 plus oil. It is predicated on a China reopening. I mean, it seems to be going full steam. Anything I see, whether it's air travel data, miles driven, you know, this TomTom sort of traffic indexes that we look at. This seems like they're getting back to almost 100 percent very quickly. Even in the face of significant COVID casualties, they are proceeding with this reopening. Mm. So, again, if they stay the course, that is the story. That is a tailwind for oil this year. I mean, on the other side of that remains concerns about rate hikes, about recessions. But that China reopening story, I think, is the most important story for the oil market this year. The U.S. producers, and I know you're not like an an equity analyst for like the individual names, but you have a great team and you guys know what they're doing. And they are increasing production. America is. But the White House wants them to produce more oil faster. I know you've spoken with Omos Hochstein, the the energy envoy. Very smart guy, thoughtful guy. But he's kind of the narrative has now shifted from. Oh. Phase out fossil fuels. So we're going to need oil for oh, I mean, absolutely. at least a decade. The narrative has shifted from keep the oil in the ground to basically now put the money in the ground. And so yeah. it is a real It's shift. a hell of a shift. It's a 180 driven, I would argue, by this war. I mean, it was driven by an energy crisis. They started thinking about energy security. And what do you need for energy security? You need more oil. Mm. And so the question is, though, you know, is if this war is indeed a multi-year war and we're talking about declining Russian energy supplies, is the U.S. enough? Is it's not OPEC just oil. enough? It's natural gas, too, because U.S. Right. natural gas is, as, a, as literally is saving Europe. Oh, absolutely. And we were just in Qatar. And the point that the Qataris made was we've diverted cargoes that were not needed in Asia Mm -hmm. because of warmer weather to Europe. But if you were looking at a year going forward of no Russian gas imports to Europe, it is going to be challenging to build inventories. And if you get a cold winter, the economic cost will be much higher than what we saw this year. Europe has literally been saved by Mother Nature and the United States. I mean, the weather has been I mean, it's 63 degrees here today. Halima. We'll catch up. Lot to discuss. Thank you so much, Good Brian. to see you in person. I'm You're usually so on a plane. <laughs> I see you at Newark Airport. I'm like, there's Salima Croft. So great to be back. Thank you. Good to see you as Thank well. Thank you. All right, on deck. A big change in big fashion. Louis Vuitton picking Pharrell Williams. Come its men's creative director. Lima likes it. What does Robert Frank think? We'll talk to him next. All right, welcome back. Hope you're having a good evening here in the East. Or maybe, I don't know, you just went out for work drinks with friends in Chicago or Dallas. All right, let's talk style. Luxury fashion brand Louis Vuitton tapping music star Pharrell Williams as the brand's next menswear designer. Robert Frank is here with more. 
Hey, Brian. Well, LVMH shares up again today after yesterday's increase, and they are up over 20% just this year so far. The company now has a market cap of over $440 billion. It is the most valuable in Europe. CEO Bernard Arnault is the richest man in the world now with a fortune close to $200 billion. And hiring Pharrell Williams as its men's creative director is all part of the strategy of not just being a luxury goods company, but what Arnault calls a culture company. So it's tapping into music, art, movies, and even sports to create hype and attention. LVMH is a part owner of Rihanna's cosmetic line, Fenty Beauty. And Tiffany, which is now owned by LVMH, partnered with Jay-Z and Beyonce for an ad campaign two years ago. A new line with Japan's top-selling female artist is now sold out in many stores. But the Pharrell hire is its biggest bet yet on this mixing of pop culture and luxury. Louis Vuitton itself is now the largest fashion brand in the world. It has doubled sales just in the last four years to over $20 billion last year. The profit margins on Louis Vuitton now close to 50%. Pharrell has his own fashion chops here. He comes in having co-founded the billionaire boys club fashion line. He also founded the skate shoe brand Ice Cream and he's got lots of collaborations with Chanel, Diesel, Adidas, and all kinds of other companies. Now, Louis Vuitton has a new CEO, and there are questions about just how quickly the China luxury consumer will come back and spend. So this is a big bet on a big name for a very big brand. Brian? Certainly is a big bet. Maybe make the world's richest man even more richer's man. Folks, everybody, thank you very much for watching us here on the CNBC special Taking Stock. We will be back again tomorrow night. Jim's got a well-deserved week off. We'll see you at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. Shark Tank is next. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 